0: Hey listener, Supriya here. Before you jump into this episode, please know that there's a mention of violence against women around the nine-minute mark. Your discretion is advised. I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: Hello everyone, you're listening to The Lit Pickers, a podcast about books and reading with me, Dipanjana Pal, and my extremely erudite and book-laden friend, Supriya, groaning under the weight of the books in my lap. (laughs) I'm not even joking. She's literally got four tomes. Well, one tome, two slim volumes and one outsized book. Also, my books are a bit waterlogged, but I just wanted them around as a memory aid. Because today we are going to do an update of something that we started with the first season of Lit Pickers, if you haven't listened to those episodes, I would highly encourage you go back and uh, listen to how amazingly scintillating we all are. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Today's episode, we like to call affectionately read like a girl, which does not mean that uh, anyone who does not identify as a girl should not read these books. It means everyone should read these books.
0: Yeah. Apologies for the bio We just like the sound of it. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully we can make up for For any gaps in this rather (laughs) sloganeering kind of title. So this is what we're going to do today. It's going to be like a relay race of
1: recommendations. So Priya will give you a recommendation, then I will give you a recommendation. You get the picture. Now, are you going to start this off since you are the book bearer?
0: (laughs) The idea of Read Like a Girl was to talk to each other and toss back and forth titles that have helped shape Some of our ideas about gender, feminism, sexuality, stuff we love to think about and that challenges us in our lives every day. But my first recommendation is actually really, really personal. It's a children's book called The Girls, written by Lauren Ace and Jenny Lovely. It is a beautifully illustrated little children's book about four little girls who become the best of friends. And it is about their bond, which lasts them a lifetime, and about how these girls grew up to become women, grew up to become best friends, grew up to become the anchors in each other's lives. And this book is really special to me because I had a bereavement this summer, and I was really buoyed and held up by the love of my friends. And that includes five of my closest friends, which I know sounds like a lot, but we just ended up being, you know, half dozen like eggs in a casket and after the funeral my friends really rallied around me and we spent two days just closeted up together and they just cocooned and enveloped me in their love and i've seen you six together before And it is just the most
1: joyous thing to see. Friendship, I think, is one of the most loveliest things to see from an outside perspective.
0: And I'm really so grateful to and me and Sean, our producers, who were also there for me at this time. And to my friend from London who flew down and brought us six copies of The Girls. It was meant to remind us of us. I don't know what this will mean to... You, dear reader, if you pick up this book and read it, maybe it will be an echo of your life. Maybe it won't be. Maybe it will seem like it represents a kind of ideal friendship that doesn't really exist. But I feel it's comforting all the same. I think there is something to be said for friendship as the basis of, well, not just a happy life, but also of a kind of happy feminism. Mm. And this may be regardless of whether or not you or your friends think of each other as people who are struggling to be in the world. Which strikes me as a pretty fundamental (laughs) challenge, you know, that feminism accepts. And that is because friendship is the one kind of relationship that I think is a bond that is not hierarchical. I've been thinking a lot about duty, about what we owe to the people we put above us, as well Mm. as what we owe to the people who are considered beneath us. But the thing about the love of friends is that it isn't meant to be dutiful. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're not there to make sacrifices for each other. It just means you're not burdened by obligation. Your friend is not the person you put before yourself. Your friend is the person you put alongside yourself. And I think that's a really great basis for a bond. Do you have a favorite bit from the book? No, I don't because Ooh. it's a short book. Yeah. But I think anyone who opens it up and looks at these beautiful illustrations of uh, really beautiful young women with you know varied features and characters that really burst through will find it really precious. Kids books have a fantastic way of reminding you again
1: of the beauty of a physical book. You know, this is not a recommendation. Like I'm going to piggyback on yours and say additionally to the girls, Julian or Julian is a mermaid by Jessica Love. It's about a kid called Julian who, as the title says, would like to be a mermaid. Thank you very much. And it's set in Coney Island. It is so exquisitely drawn and one of the most uh, delightful real life examples of uh, gender fluidity. And Jessica, love tells you how boys can be mermaids.
0: Julian, I don't want to crush you, but I think the parts that you need to be a mermaid are gills. (laughs) (laughs) No, you just need makeup and a shiny tail. Okay, well, good. That works, too. Yeah. Okay, over to you.
1: The first book that I will recommend, not 1A, this is now 2. Furies is a collection of short stories, an anthology that was brought out uh, earlier in 2023. To mark 50 years of Virago, the feminist publishing house. This book brings in short stories by Margaret Atwood, Emma Donoghue, Camilla Shamsi, oh, Helen wow. Oyayemi. Mm. Um, Real powerhouse. Yeah, yeah, hard, brilliant writers, mm. you know. It's also got a superb introduction by uh, Sandy Toxvig. Toxvig uh, is the presenter of shows on BBC and a comedian and a writer and just generally quite amazing. Yeah. What Furies does is take terms like hag, like virago, and attempt to reclaim them through Mm. their stories. These are problematic, flawed women, gender fluid people. One of my favorite stories in the volume is called Virago by C.N. Lester. And it's based on a real life incident where the accused was considered a man And then revealed, I say, with bunny ears, because the process of investigation suggested that this person is biologically female, but identifies as a man. Really powerfully written stuff. There's also one short story is a graphic novel in there, and it is so delightfully creepy. Just like, it's wonderful.
0: And the constellation of star writers really makes it seem like it's a really a reflection of the debt, I think, that world publishing, at least in English, owes to Virago, right, as a feminist press. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Can't imagine how much work it was to put together. I
1: cannot imagine. But also, it's a really lovely reminder of how the idea of a virago, the idea of being a feminist, they're not fixed notions. They change depending upon the times that you're in, the mood that you're in. It's a really good reminder of how malleable ideas are for the better. It's also great as a book if you're feeling the reading slump, because, you know, short stories.
0: Three pages. Done. But anyway, so that's number two for me. Okay. I'm going to talk about King Kong Theory by Virginie Despentes, or Virginie Depente, uh, if you want a more anglicized pronunciation. King Kong Theory is a short book by an extraordinary writer, personality, mm-hmm. and a novelist, someone who is really punk rock. Mm. And when King Kong Theory came out in the late 80s in France, it set the French world of letters on fire, which must be hard because I always imagine the French world of letters being like permanently on fire. So what is the King Kong theory itself? King Kong theory is a memoir that is also a punk rock manifesto. It is about Depont's life, mm. trying to come to terms with, well, how hard it is to be mm. young, how hard it is to be a woman and how hypocritical society can be. And so she starts by saying, I write from the realms of the ugly, for the ugly, the frigid, the unfucked, and the unfuckables. All those excluded from the great meat market of female flesh. And for all those guys who don't want to be protectors, for those who would like to be but don't know how, and for those who are not ambitious, competitive, or well-endowed. I love it. It's such a lovely little hand grenade into the French world of letters. And I think Mm. also into... What possibly counted as a bit of a low moment for feminist writing and thought, Mm. not in terms of philosophy or ideology or movements, but sometimes you just need sheer creativity and sheer Mm. delight. And what King Kong theory does through its extreme elegance and the pose of youthful truth telling that Dipont takes for us is to open it up and Mm. to make us interesting to ourselves again. It is a book, among other things, about some really traumatic things that happened to her. Mm. It recounts in detail how she and a friend were raped as young women. Oh dear. She talks about her time in sex work, but what she criticizes is not the work itself, mm. but the shame attached mm. to it and tries mm. to explode some of the shame around it, which she does really successfully. Mm. I think all of these things manage to gather a storm around King Kong theory that has never really dissipated, even though she's written award-winning novels this is the book that she is handed most often to autograph, uh, which I guess is a comment on celebrity culture that, of course, it makes sense that you want a writer you love to sign the book that you love the most. But Mm. essentially, you're handing an author a book in which she has recounted her sexual assault to inscribe. Mm. Uh, What does it mean for that? But I don't think that's a thing for you or I to resolve at this moment. But uh, King Kong Theory definite recommendation. It is part of, I think, a millennial feminist canon because Mm. it was translated in 2006. And so a Uh. lot of younger people have discovered it since. And if you haven't yet, please do give it a shot. Over to you. Okay.
1: I'm going to go with The Mere Wife, which when I first spotted in a bookstore, I thought this was going to be about an unhappy marriage, because I thought mere, as in, you know,
0: trivial. What could sound more kitchen sink, right? (laughs) I know, right? Yeah.
1: Except this is a modern retelling of Beowulf, and it is brilliant. The novel is written by a translator and author named Maria Davana Headley. And the first thing that you see in the book is that there are two words, which nobody actually knows how to pronounce because they're uh, Old English. Oh, I'm going with what I've heard Headley say. So the root word, which is like A-G-L-A-E-C, hmm. but that's what we write with modern English letters. But that root word is the same that's used to describe a warrior. It's the same word that's used to describe the woman opponent Mm. in Beowulf. Grendel's mother. Grendel's mother. Yeah. Now, what is interesting is that in the process of translation, here's what's happened. The word for the male has been translated by scholars as masculine fighter, warrior, hero. Mm. The word for the woman has been translated to wretch, monster, hell bride, hag. Oh, I know which side I'm on. Wonder which one, (laughs) right? So what she's basically doing is unpacking the kind of prejudice that has come in through translations. The original text is not laden with these prejudices. Mm -hmm. And The Mere Wife is from the perspective mostly of Grendel's mother. It's set in contemporary America. It's got a queer love story also in there. It's got one of the most powerful takedowns of uh, suburban American marriage, middle class life. So well done. It also has some of the most beautiful English prose that I have read in uh, recent years, particularly from America. Mm. Really beautiful. Is it on
0: your Kindle? Can you read us
1: a line? Uh, This is a random bit from the novel. There's a long tradition that says women gossip when in fact women are the memory of the world. We keep the family trees and the baby books. We manage the milk teeth. We keep the census of diseases, the records of divorces, battles and medals. We witness the wills. We wash the weddings out of the bedsheets. We know everything there is to know. And we keep it rolled into the newel posts, stuffed into the mattresses, smuggled inside our vaginas if it comes to that. Women's clothing is made without pockets, but we come into the world equipped. We lean on his file folders. Furies dressed in midday luncheon attire. Oh my gosh. is it great? I mean, I was just like, sold.
0: Furies dressed in midday luncheon attire. That's me. Today, right now. <laughs> I've been reading her translation of Beowulf, which I think she yeah. embarked on after The Mere Wife or at least no, was published before. after. Uh, before. That's published. what got
1: her started to do the novel because like she hadn't finished like she was like it's not out of I'm my not system yet with what I want to say yeah, yeah but oh, I think the yeah, uh, really translation came know. out first I can't remember but yeah
0: it's been really lovely to read her perspective on how she became interested in this epic as a fan essentially mm. and then how she took up what I know she'll take as a compliment like the vulgar scholarship mm. which is not the scholarship that's enclosed in Ivory Towers yeah, exactly. she wants Beowulf to become a poem of the people and it's Such a wonderful labor of love from a writer who has so much talent to burn. And, you know, it's people like her who remind
1: you that the person who is translating is a very critical medium through whom you find a text. So when they bring their open mindedness or close mindedness to a text, it makes all the difference. Yeah,
0: they've just written the book for you. Yeah, because
1: like I read Beowulf as a young person who was studying literature. Mm. And I was just like, I mean, yeah, but really? <laughs> you know, it's such a masculine story. And like Grendel's mum's just like vilified within an edge of her life in this. Uh, That's true. She's never epic. not vilified. I was like, exactly. Why is Seamus Haney so taken by this epic? You know, but when I read Headley's translation, and then when I read The Mare Wife, I was just like, this is fascinating. Mm. It's also such a complicated portrait of power. Grendel's mother in Mere Wife is an American army veteran. So she oh. brings power in a very literal way sense. Mm. But then she's also on the fringes of society because she's rejected all of these superstructures, the family, the army, the patriarchy, and she lives in a forest with her son. Mm. And then things
0: happen. And it's the paradox of the veteran, right? I guess mm. you're kind of an agent of destruction. Mm. And then you take upon yourself the marginalization that society is going to inflict on yeah. you.
1: So when we meet her at the start of the book, she has been taken hostage by the enemy unexplained who exactly the enemy is, okay. but also that uh, Grendel is clearly not white. Mm. So that's part of what makes him a monster. Right. Right. So like there's a lot of this contemporaneity that she sort of folded into this medieval text. It's so well done. cannot recommend Can it someone enough. read
0: it if they're unfamiliar with Beowulf?
1: 100%. It makes no difference whatsoever. Amazing. Because it's set in the present. It's about... Being a teenager and the mother of a teenager, it's Mm. about being in an unhappy marriage, taking over old ancestral lands and sort of, you know, bulldozing literally to bring in progress Mm. for the want of a better phrase and more toxic phrase.
0: Okay, now you. The next book I want to talk about is a work that's not really vulgar scholarship. In fact, it is very much something that emerges from Mm. the university, but that's kind of gotten vulgar currency. And this is uh, Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life. Professor Emmett, I'm so sorry if you pronounce your name, Sarah. I haven't actually heard before. It feels like a compilation of some of her work that's already gotten like a lot of circulation out there before. She's best known for the coinage, Kilroy feminism, and of Feminist Snap, which is something that will be familiar to everyone who lived through the last few years of feminist conversation on the internet around the world. What is the moment when you are just like holy shit, I have had enough. And then you stop playing along with whatever it is you were playing along with. Living a Feminist Life is published in India by Zuban Books. And it has an introduction by a truly delightful feminist writer, Chayanika Shah. Such a great introduction from someone who has really lived the life, Mm. right? Mm. Uh, If you've ever been to
1: a feminist protest in Bombay, you have seen her. She's right there. In the front
0: lines. Yeah. Chanika Shah is a writer, a science educator, a queer feminist. Her life story is extraordinary. And she kind of provides a very grounded lead in Mm. to Ahmed's cerebral ideas about just how feminism is birthed within us how we practice it, how we don't practice it, and the things that we have to give up and the things that we have to gather to ourselves mm. as we live our feminism. Yeah, yeah, I want to love this book. What I can give it is something that might feel like more of a compliment, which is that I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> there was something about the idea of the killjoy feminist, the feminist who complains, that I think has been A really necessary wake up call for a lot of younger people who have really only known feminism from popular culture from 20 years ago when it was all about consumption, Mm. right? That's what choice feminism is, right? It's about getting to choose a blue vibrator as much as a pink one. (laughs) There's some power to what underwrites Emmett's theory and her arguments, which is that It is about stepping away from the things that make you happy or that Mm. you think make you happy and having to retool that. I think we all live online so much. Over the last few years, it has become more difficult than ever to see a movement as something that actually brings us closer to each other. The last thing that feminists can look back on as a movement is Me Too, Mm. which really took place in some fairly isolated spaces. Very isolated spaces, yeah. What about the idea that feminism is something that you do for each other? That it is as much about living for others as it is about living for yourself. I think that is a very difficult thing to propose to women and to non-binary people and people whose gender identities are not cishet. Because, yeah, we know that. Like, Mm. we were born and brought up to live for other people. But what if that is where the power of a movement really comes from? I think this question rises in me as I read Living a Feminist Life. And so in that sense, I'm grateful to the book for giving me a chance to... Think about that. Yeah, I feel like these are works of theory and practice
1: sort of brought together. The theory part is really important for, you know, a book like uh, Living a Feminist Life. I was also reminded while you were talking of Amir Srinivasan's The Right to Sex, which is an outstanding book again of essays. But once again, so thought provoking because there are no simple answers in fact, what they're putting out as their argument makes you interrogate how you're articulating yourself and what you're preaching, what you're practicing and why you're taking these calls? It's great.
0: Right. Uh, how do you not- form feminist habits? I think, those are, <laughs> I think those are good questions that crop up. right? And if writing yeah. from great essayists and from really muscular thinkers like Ahmed and Srinivasan yeah. come through for us, then I think. Yeah, 100%. Feminism is doing its job. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Over to you. Okay. I'm
1: going to go into full fiction territory with one of my favorite books of recent years, Delayed Rays of a Star by Amanda Lee Coe. Ooh. Uh have you read it? Yeah. Did you like it? I'm a fan of the cleverness of so the So the starting point for this novel is the one photograph that exists of Marlon Dietrich with Anna Mae Wong, Hollywood actress, one of the first, if not the first Asian American. Yeah, I think maybe heroine. the first major Chinese yeah, American. Yeah, I think she's the heroine. first one. There's her, and brace yourselves, Lenny Riefenstahl, mm-hmm. <laughs> filmmaker to hit <Hitler>. drum roll. <laughs> uh, so these three women, there's one photograph of them at a party. And Amanda Lee Coe, for her debut novel, no less spun just the most fantastic historical fiction with these three ladies lives. Some of it is very strongly grounded on what actually happened, particularly in case of Dietrich and Wong. And it is a trip. Again, amazing prose, but also just like, it's very carefully structured, but doesn't wear its labour on its sleeve.
0: Like, yeah. it just I don't flows. W- I don't want to be gender essentialist, but a guy would have taken 800 pages for that novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not saying that this is a slim volume. No, it's not. But you never feel the length of it. Our friend Paramita Vora expressed it like this. She said, at least have the courage to try and charm me. Mm. And what Amanda Lee really does have is the courage to try and charm oh. you, right? She wants to write... A breezy novel that is also brainy.
1: Yeah. You know, what I love about Delayed Rays of a Star is... It's not
0: nostalgic at all, right? It's not at
1: all nostalgic, despite being set in... uh, Pretty nostalgic times. Pretty nostalgic eras for some people, at at any rate. Here's the thing. Delayed Rays of a Star is not interested in pleasing the reader in the slightest. It will surprise you. It will unsettle you. It will leave you wondering about a lot of things that you took for granted. But it will charm the pants off you and
0: how? God, there's that moment in the present day of the book, Dietrich's handmaiden. Yeah, we get to see how she managed to get into France. This is a young, indigent Chinese migrant, right? Mm. I'm not going to give away spoilers, but the Madame Bovary line, (laughs) it's it's so good. So good. I stood up and applauded (laughs) in my bedroom. This is a book that
1: is Perfect if you're a literature geek, but if you're not, you will still just be taken by the drama of what happens with these three women and how their lives intersect and diverge and just travel through time. I can't recommend it enough. It's great
0: fun. Amazing. Okay, it's you. Okay, I'm going to recommend one more book. A few years ago, Jerry Pinto, who has been one of our foremost translators of Marathi writing into English in the last few years, Brought out a translation of a little red memoir in Marathi. Mm. It was called Malau uh, Dvasta which means I want to destroy myself. And that is the title of the translated work. The book's author is Malika Amar Sheikh. Hmm. Her father, Amar Sheikh, was one of maybe the tallest figures in the history of 20th century Bombay. He was a loka shahir or a folk poet and a bard. Our listeners who have seen the movie Court may know this figure because there is a shahir yeah. in court who is one of the protagonists. And this is a political performance poet who is a very key figure in leftist politics, in Bombay mill culture and Bombay working class culture. And Amr Sheikh was mm. among the best known of these people. Card carrying communist, broke the bonds of religion in marrying Malika and her sister, were brought up without religion. They were brought up within the fold of the party, Mm. within Bombay's radical political circles. And when she was still just about a schoolgirl, she met a man named Hassal. Another one of the tallest figures in 20th century Bombay history. And poetry in general. And maybe in Indian literary history. The author of Golpitha, revolutionary Dalit poet, co-founder of the Dalit Panthers. And they had... A horrible marriage. Mm. So this is her recounting of her life. She unselfconsciously says, I'm not someone who is well versed in ideology. Mm. I've been surrounded by all of this, but I reject it because it doesn't really help me to tell the story of my life. I am a poet, but the one book of poems that came out, I just gave them away for free and they disappeared. Mm. And so she's also written this autobiography, not in the expectation that it's a milestone in her literary career. She doesn't have a literary career. Mm. She has seen her life subsumed by the politics that she has lived in and by what she sees as her position in society as a woman mm. and as someone who is and cured, as a wife. And as a wife and as a daughter mm. and as a mother all come together to really form her in ways against her will. Right. So the book, I think, is a love letter to her survival. But it's not a happy book. It's a short book. Jerry says in his introduction that it was not a book that made him glad to translate.
1: I just think that the title in itself, I Want to Destroy Myself, is just a chilling title because it's also the act of writing, usually, and particularly with memoirs, is actually an
0: act of building. Yeah, it's a self-fashioning, right? Yeah. And I think she plays on the paradox of that. This Mm. is not someone who necessarily feels sorry for herself the fact that she has words the fact that she has an education and that she has a will Mm. those are things that she considers very precious to herself and yet at her lowest points there is some sense of her thinking what can I do except tell you what has happened to me this tempestuous marriage has taken them apart from each other you know it's brought them back together they're moving you know to Lunavla and Pune and other places like that and she's outside Bombay without her family networks or her friends and she's feeling herself falling ill Mm. her husband is off on work There's no one in the house except just a really like dour bachelor Ambedkarite, who is not someone whom she can confide in. She can't tell him that she has these horrendous boils growing, you know, on her private parts, but that it's sapping her health. And then she reveals to us that, you know, this is what he's done to me. Like he's passed on venereal disease to me. Mm. And she tells us what happens after that. She's on the verge of unconsciousness before she crawls to ask a fellow worker for help. And this woman tells her, Didi, what is there to be ashamed about? And gives her the money so that she can go to the doctor to get treated. And this woman is the wife of a railway station sweeper. This kind of look at the underbelly of movement politics Mm. and of the men and women who get caught up in it, that is so resolutely not about its heroes and about the people that we hear about. I think it's a kind of intellectual history that feels invaluable. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And it comes from someone who is disclaiming the idea of being an intellectual. Mm. It's a book whose opinions can come off as unfashionable. Mm. This is a woman who, for example, looks at her Muslim neighbors across the road and says, you know, like, why are they all like that? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not an easy read for more than one reason, but I also think it is a book whose reasons for being reveal itself with every line Mm -hmm. that is written. And for anyone who is interested, In the history of the city, of this country, of leftist movements, of the limits of radical love and radical politics as we have experienced them, needs to get their hands on this book. Wow. Over to you. That
1: sounds uh, shattering. I'm going to round us off by going very far into the past Mm -hmm. with a book called The Secret Garland, which is a translation with excellent, insightful commentary of Antal's poetry. Antal being the 4th century Alvar saint. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only one who is female. Now, if you don't know about her, then she's an incredibly transgressive figure. So in the Vaishnav tradition of worship, there is a lot of importance given to the devotee. Hmm. The idea that art is completed by the viewer. In Vaishnav tradition, there is one school of thought that basically says that there is no devotion without the devotee. So the devotee is... As important as the divinity, Antal is very much part of that school in that she has a self-assurance that is very rare amongst people in general and women in particular of that time. Her standout breakout moment is when she takes the garland that has been put together for the deity and wears it herself first which is like a fully no-go, taboo thing to do. Mm. So she is roundly scolded for doing such things and punished, except the deity appears to the priest who happens to be her father and says that, why have I not got the garland that she wore? That's the one I want. Mm. Andal's poetry is... It's a young girl's writing. It's filled with desire. It's filled with anger. Mm. Archana Venkateshan's translations are interesting also because she gives you very solid commentary with it, which is something I've missed from other translations. I like knowing the historical context within which these languages are coming out. These phraseologies are coming out and what they're referring to because she has references to a certain river, to a certain temple. And this book sort of, you know, explains these things to you very nicely. But also, I love the self-assurance of this young, teenaged woman who is humming with sensuality and desire for a god. Right. And who thinks of herself as absolutely worthy of being his sexual partner, like in the myth of Antal, it ends with her basically becoming one with God.
0: Would uh, listeners who are perhaps more familiar with Northern Indian traditions find a commonality between Aranda and uh, Meera? Meera? I don't think so. Meera is quite chaste, no?
1: But also like possibly because of the worship traditions that the two of them are part of. There's very very different societies, obviously, that these two are from. Very different eras. Very different eras, all of that. But there's a certain subservience almost in Meera's poetry. She's very much looking up at Krishna.
0: Hmm.
1: Antan is very equal.
0: Why do you think her translations aren't more widely available or read? The language is clunky often. Like even in this,
1: like there's a very concerted effort to smoothen out the translation. Hmm. But there's Sanskrit, there's Tamil, there's another language in there. These are old words. Sure. I think it's the transgressive nature of her own story hmm. that colours how you see her poetry in a tremendously powerful way. She's a Sappho for Mm. us.
0: Can you play us out with a quote from a poem? I'm just going to go with like
1: two lines which are actually not about any of the gods. They were enough for Sappho. (laughs) They were enough for Sappho. They are definitely enough for Antal. But they're two lines that really stuck with me when we were getting to the studio because it's been raining a lot. Mm. And you know, like the rain as well as the season of rains is uh, deeply central in Indian traditions. Mm. She calls the rain beloved. Mm. She calls it beloved rain withhold nothing from us. So we may live in this world. So we may rejoice. That's it. I mean, it sums up in three lines why rain is important to this country. You can't live without it. You literally cannot. Your food cycles, your water. And our characters. And our sex appeal. (laughs) Everything is in that dampness. (laughs) On that note... In this
0: studio, soon to exit, are Deepanjana and Supriya. And you've been listening to Read Like a Girl from The Lit Pickers, a podcast about books and reading produced in the city of Bombay. The Lit Pickers is a made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, Tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media. Tell your friends and family. Scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag #LitPickers. Follow Supra the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks. Keep listening.